New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Our guest today, Ethan Nickturn, tells us that one of the keys to being a spiritual warrior in Buddhist terms is being brave enough to repeatedly look honestly at our own heart-mind, to be fearless enough to keep challenging our own negative views of who we are. He asks, what could possibly be more important than taking care of our heart-mind, our true home, and says the decision to prioritize your relationship with your heart-mind and your relationship with other sentient beings is deeply connected with what it means to practice Buddhism. Today we'll be exploring meditation, the deep intelligence of our emotions, spiritual materialism, and more with our guest, Ethan Nickturn. Ethan Nickturn is a senior teacher in the Shambhala Buddhist tradition and the founder of the Interdependence Project, a nonprofit organization dedicated to secular Buddhist study as it applies to transformational activism, mindful arts and media projects, and Western psychology. Nickturn has taught meditation and Buddhist studies classes and retreats across the United States since 2002. He's based in New York City, and he's the author of One City, A Declaration of Interdependence, The Road Home, A Contemporary Exploration of the Buddhist Path. Join us for the next hour as we explore how we get stuck in our own defensive strategies with our guest, Ethan Nickturn. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'm your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Ethan, welcome to New Dimensions. Thanks for having me, Justine. Great to be here. It's great to have you. Uh, I want to go back to a little bit of your early days. You grew up in a Buddhist household. I believe that both your parents were Buddhist teachers. Some might call you a Dharma brat. Some have called me a Dharma brat, yes. <laughs> However, you it that doesn't mean that you got Buddhism handed to you all wrapped up pretty in a package. Can you say something about your early efforts to discover Buddhism for yourself? Yeah, I mean, I grew up, um, both of my parents were creative people. My father a musician, my mother was a painter who later became a Buddhist psychologist. They were both students of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, the uh, Tibetan Buddhist pioneer in the West before I was born. Um, and I grew up mostly in New York City, so it's it's interesting to grow up Buddhist in a, in a, 
in the sort of capital of our 21st century Roman Empire. <laughs> you know, I, I was always interested in I did my first class in meditation when I was about 10 years old, which was very boring. Um, but I also remember really relating to the idea of having a mind and that what you were thinking was not necessarily the same as what was happening. I remember that through all the boredom being really um, interesting. My parents were really, they were very open about it. So it was really clear that they were involved in the Shambhala community. And uh, they were both taught, my father taught a lot more than my mother. And, you know, they never pushed it on me. And uh, I did my first weekend meditation retreat when I was about 15. And it was really um, at the end of high school that I started meditating about 10 minutes a day on my own when I would get home from school. But I, I kind of kept it from them. I wanted it to be my own thing. And, uh I don't know, you just, if you're going to do what your parents are doing, I think you want to make your own relationship to it. And it's not, it's such a personal path, even though it's such a universal human path that I think uh, you can't really inherit it. You have to really come to it on your own. And then when I went away to college, I had my first major love and heartbreak my freshman year of college. And after that, dealing with the heartbreak was when I really uh, committed to studying meditation and Buddhism. So Heartbreak, as as with many people, <laughs> was what made me a Buddhist. <laughs> That's very, very good. I I know that you mentioned Buddhism in a in a certain way that, uh, let's say, that is practiced by many people here in the United States and maybe around the world. That the tradition comes from a lineage, but it's it's not so much a a religion, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, this is one of the tricky uh, conversations that's going on right now because I think whenever you get into the question of is Buddhism a religion, you get you rub up against how vaguely defined that word religion actually has come to be. And, um, you know, I think the Buddha was definitely trying to teach psychological truths on the nature of mind and the nature of our suffering and contentment from a very mental place. Then obviously when a tradition develops over centuries and millennia, it develops certain infrastructures, uh, certain rituals, certain cultures in the places that it goes to that give it a religious feel. And um, But at the same time, I think the way it's coming to the West is it's really coming as a more uh, system of mental health and wellness. That's, you know, the, the most interesting conversations for me in terms of Buddhism are around how it applies to secular fields of knowledge, such as how it relates to the larger mindfulness movement that's really sprouted up. Western psychology, neuroscience and Buddhism is really interesting. Uh, how it affects one's creative process, art making, what it has to say to our political system. So, you know, maybe that's something that a lot of different spiritual or religious traditions have, but I, that's that's the main way I'm interested in Buddhism. I think that's the main way that... Um, most people who are getting interested in Buddhism in the West from a meditative, contemplative, psychological, and ethical standpoint relate to it. It's really interesting because um, uh, uh, the Pew poll that just came out talking about the decline in especially young Americans um, affiliating themselves with Christianity or with any religion and the rapid rate of, of the rise of young people calling themselves agnostics or atheists I think that really goes with a quest for spirituality that's more humanistic, less faith-driven, more um, heart-based, more uh, observational, more scientific, if you will. So I think the 
increase in popularity in Buddhism and the and the increase in, in popularity in agnosticism and atheism, they have something to say to each other. So I don't view it as a religion. And also I think it's really important that Buddhism developed in the Eastern world before that that separation between religious and secular existed in the Western world. It's really coming out of the age of enlightenment. And it's really, you know, the, the notion of science is really coming out of a rebellion against blind faith uh, because this series of thinkers said, you know, we need to find ways to answer the questions about what's going on in reality that aren't just uh, driven uh, by faith, that aren't just answers given to us by the church. And that's really where the scientific method as separate from a spiritual belief system came about. But really what the Shambhala teachings say is we're really only living one life. And it should be both scientific in the sense of really looking deeply uh, with clear observation about what's going on, really experiencing ourselves, experiencing others, experiencing our world from a real clear-headed, clear-hearted place, but also that that should be a sacred endeavor. So you're saying it's not separated from our life. We're not over here meditating somewhere, but it's like getting off the cushion and really having it manifest in our life, our yeah. work, our relationships. Exactly. And, and from that standpoint, you could say it either way. You could say everything is spiritual. Work is spiritual. Romance is spiritual. Art is spiritual. Politics are spiritual. Or you could say it the other way and say Buddhism is secular. You know? right. But really the right. Shambhala teachings, and Chogyam Trungpa has some great quotes about this, is, are really looking at how we um, sort of separate our profound selves from our mundane selves. Mm -hmm. and, and the teachings aren't talking about separation of church and state. That's absolutely crucial to any free society. But they're saying for an individual, we really need to look in an integrated way at how we're actually gaining meaning from life in a, and, and how we're actually living in our secular world. So that brings me, my, my mind is spinning. We could go lots of different directions here, but one direction I want to go, you use uh, the term for Buddhism, you use the term awakeism. Yeah. And that, what does that mean? What does that convey? Right. Well, it's, awakeism is a more literal translation, and that this is one of the things... Um, and we were just talking about this last night when we were talking about the road home, um, is, you know, language can really unite people. It can really open doors or it can make you think that there's divisions. It can exclude. And so I'm interested in Buddhism because it's, it's a, the first part of that word is actually Sanskrit or Pali. And literally the word Buddha means one who is awake, right? The second part of that word is English. So it's always an interesting word to me because it's not a fully translated word. And one of the things in talking about this book that people said that that just opened their eyes was just what happens if you fully translate the word Buddhism? You get awakeism, and then you start saying, oh, that's somebody who's trying to live in awake and compassionate life in the world. That's not this it's subset of life. mystical spirit seekers. It's, it's, it's much more accessible but all you really did is fully translate the word, and it, and it opens up a door of saying, exactly. like, oh, that's really, that's interesting. I want to be awake. In my introduction, I mentioned heart-mind. Yeah. And what, can you tell us what you mean by, by heart-mind? But I, I, first, I wanted to say, in, in 
Buddhist teachings or being with a Buddhist teacher, often when they say mind, they move their hand and they put it over their heart. They're often the case. They'll say mind, but the their body is is showing their hand is showing the heart. So, what do you mean by heart mind? Yeah, so I've heard that too in in Tibetan communities and in terms of the the centers of energy in the in the tantric Buddhist teachings. It's similar that when you point to your body, you point to your forehead, and when you point to your mind, you point to your heart center. You know. So th- the interesting thing is, I think we. Our language develops this distinction. When we say my head, we really mean our intellectual, cognizing, logical, reasoning intelligence. And when we point to our heart, we mean our feeling, intuitive, emotive intelligence. And I think the notion of really, um, as I talk about in the book, learning to live in awareness is really uh, about viewing those two types of intelligence as... uh, completely entwined. They need to be developed together. And so our word mind, I think, harkens a little too much to intellectual intelligence. When you say someone has a great mind, you mean they're sharp. And our word heart, I think, harkens a little too much to just the emotive or the felt side of things. And so, you know, I go back and forth. It's a word I've actually heard before. I don't think I'm the first one to do it, but heart, mind. But, um, it feels a little cheesy, but I like that quality of it integrating intellect and intuition. I'm here with um, Shambhala teacher Ethan Nickturn, and he's the author of The Road Home, A Contemporary Exploration of the Buddhist Path. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, ethannickturn.com, and he spells his last name N-I-C-H-T-E-R-N, Ethan nickturn.com or you can get there through the New Dimensions website newdimensions.org I'm Justine Willis-Toms you're listening to New Dimensions here with Ethan Nickturn, and he's the author of The Road Home, A Contemporary Exploration of the Buddhist Path. And Ethan, um, I would like to talk a little bit about meditation and mindfulness. Let's say mindfulness, it's kind of up in the culture, and it's kind of become almost a commodity. I mean, Mm. people are into mindfulness so that they're more productive or they're meditating so that they can take time out, but then they jump right back into everything uh, that they're doing. So can you say something about meditation and mindfulness? Yeah. Um, I mean, first of all, in our 
current 2015 moment, you know, we have this thing called the mindfulness movement, which was a cover of Time magazine last year. Um, I'm really feeling this personally in my own educational background. Um, when I was a college student in the late 1990s, I think the one meditation group on campus met uh, at 7 a.m. on Sunday mornings. So you can imagine how popular that was. Mm -hmm. And now this year at Brown University, you can major in contemplative studies for the first year. So it's really, you know, taking over college campuses. My high school has a course called the Art and Science of Mindfulness. And these things just didn't exist in the 1990s. And so obviously, you know, in terms of psychotherapy taking to mindfulness, um, in terms of the medical world taking to mindfulness, it's it's really spreading throughout our educational and health systems at a, at a beautiful pace, I think. It's also mindfulness as that sort of ability to bring one's mind into the present moment and reduce stress, sort of the most superficial terms, but it's still important terms that Buddhist thought talks about mindfulness is moving into corporate culture. You know, Google has a whole search inside yourself uh, program, things like that. And so there's, there is right now this sort of, I guess, some spiritual thinkers and some more progressively political spiritual thinkers are looking at how, what are the ethical implications of bringing mindfulness as stress reduction, as just sort of gathering the mind or increasing focus into environments um, that may be from other aspects of the Buddhist uh, tradition, like our interest in interdependence, not causing harm, taking care of each other, taking care of the planet might feel superficial. And so you have this other term in sort of response to the mindfulness movement that's a, a facetious term mick mindfulness that sort of <laughs> refers to mass meaning mcdonald's mass produced um easily digestible although mcdonald's is not that <laughs> um uh sort of uh easy to take doesn't challenge one's life or our role in the world at all and so there's this conversation going on like is that superficial approach okay and I have to say, Justine, I'm really optimistic. As I uh, said at the, uh, we were having this conversation uh, with Dan Harris, who's an ABC News anchor who wrote a book, 10% Happier, a great book for skeptics about his own meditation practice, which began with an on-air panic attack. And we were talking about mindfulness. And one of the points I made is, you know, everything has a surface. Every deep tradition has a surface. It's only a problem if there's nothing beneath the surface. But people have to come to meditation in their own way. And if what people are looking for is stress reduction, I'm thinking of a program like John Kabat-Zinn's Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, which has helped thousands and thousands of people. I think we have to trust that when you start to look at your own mind, you're going to eventually want to go deeper. And even if it's just stress reduction, I, th I think it's better to have less stressful people who can deal with their own minds, deal with their own nervous systems, even if they're not um, becoming uh, total progressive active activists, environmental saviors, and you know helping all the poor uh, and oppressed people of the planet yet. I mean, I think we have to take things one step at a time. I do think the Buddhist teachings eventually move in the direction of an individual really living from a place of interdependence. But I don't think that's how people start studying mm -hmm. Buddhism most of the time. So why should we expect Google search inside yourself program to start from a place of 
we're going to become a nonprofit or we're going to just, you know, benefit everyone uh, egolessly. So I think, I think there, I'm, I'm a big fan of letting people's paths evolve in time. And I'm actually, when I look at the kids I got to work with from my old high school, I got to visit with them. It's amazing that this exists in high school now. It's, it's wonderful, you know, and, um, so I think it's 99% positive that mindfulness and meditation are starting to spread. I also joke in the book that meditation um, has become very theoretically popular because there's, um, there's so many misconceptions about it that I think are based on our difficulty dealing with our own mind. We're not trained in our educational system for the most part to really be with ourselves, to really look at who's having all these experiences and so I think a lot of people know that meditation is a really good thing, but when they sit down to try to do it, they're faced with this kind of maelstrom of thought and feeling and boredom and irritation that they've never really had to look at. And many people are white, might, when they first start off, are coming at it like, oh, meditation is going to be some blissful sort of right. place that I'm going to get to bliss out, and then when... We sit down and our minds are just running away with all sorts of thoughts. Uh, it's kind of shocking. But that's the point, isn't it? It is the point. And it's also from a really realistic and compassionate place. What meditation is about is getting to know yourself without having to bounce your mind off of lots of objects or activities. Um, you're really saying, who is this person? How, who is this being? having all these experiences. What does it feel like to be me? And um, it, it's not necessarily a bliss state. I mean, I think there's rare moments of bliss, but it's really, it's not about achieving from a Buddhist standpoint, especially from the Shambhala standpoint. It's not about um, achieving uh, some state of mind, you know. It's about forming a relationship with yourself, an ongoing day-by-day -day relationship, which is why... The chapter title of the first chapter is called Meditation, Accepting Your Own Friend Request. But there is a point where we get to practice a choice, mm -hmm. so to speak. And, and you talk about that. You talk about that uh, reacting of a gap, you call mm -hmm. it, and a gap. There's that split moment, and we get to kind of be able to practice saying, well, maybe I won't go there. <laughs> Can you say something about that? Yeah, so that's in. I, I really wanted to take on some of these uh, core Buddhist topics that are sometimes, I think, overly spiritualized and could just be looked at from a more kind of practical and moment-by-moment, -moment, like, human way of looking at things. And, and I think the main thing I really wanted to take on is karma, which I think is most helpful if we just look at it as Buddhist teachings on a psychology of habit. Why does our mind get stuck in certain storylines, certain behavioral patterns, and how can we meet that in the present moment? And so the gap is this very, sometimes very subtle and sometimes very obvious, depending on the situation, moment in between feeling our reaction to the present moment and the impulse and choice we make for how to respond. And I think a lot of times when people think about a gap, well, first of all, they think about a clothing company, but beyond <laughs> that, they think about a blank space. Mm -hmm. 
And in this kind of gap, as I say in the book, there can be quite a lot of quite a lot of energy because the gap could be the moment you're incredibly attracted to somebody or the moment you're incredibly disgusted by what somebody just said to you or scared by what somebody just said to you. And you're actually resting for a moment and saying, I'm not just going to strategize how to respond. I'm really going to leave space to feel what I'm feeling and then maybe shift into a more compassionate or skillful way of meeting the situation. So that's really what I think we have lots of different meditation techniques in Buddhism. But I think, as I say in that chapter, you could say they're all about working with the gap, which is not a bliss space. It's a, what am I actually feeling and how do I meet that skillfully? And there may be a, a period of time, there, there's a lag time. I know for me, I recently experienced um, being upset that I felt rejected by someone. And then I was talking to another friend on the phone, and I was saying, oh, man, I really feel like they did this to me. And then I started laughing. I said, oh, right. I just went into my old strategy Mm -hmm. that came from my childhood. And this came through meditation that I've started to understand these habits that you're talking about, this habit of I before I'm rejected, I isolate myself, and then I blame them for rejecting me. And I, my, my friend and I, we just started bursting out into laughter as we saw, ah, again. And, and you call this, you, you say, okay, we tell ourselves, uh, the, you give ourselves, give us the mantra, oops, yeah. oops, <laughs> oops. Yeah, well, I mean, I think sometimes people think that Buddhist thought is just about the present moment. But being able to witness what we're doing, especially in the heat of a life situation where you're having an argument with a family member or something intense is happening at work or at school, it's really advanced to be able to become fully aware in the present moment. And so a lot of practice is actually reflecting, you know, and some of it's interpersonal. I, I would say when you have a conversation with a good friend who's helping you reflect on your feelings who's not just, you know, gossiping with you or complaining or, you know, we all have those friends too and that serves a different purpose. Um, You know, that's like a shared meditation and you're kind of reflecting on your past. And I think the thing about karma is it's related to interdependence is when you realize how we got into these stuck patterns, you realize that it's not just you. It's all of the forces that help shape you. And it's not just those forces. It's all of the forces that help shape those forces. So it's not your parents' fault because your parents had parents. And so that notion of interdependent cause and effect starts to loosen up the whole sense of, as Pema Chodron, one of the teachers in our Shambhala lineage, says, bad me. And we need to loosen up this sense of bad me and replace it with a sense of basic goodness. And what my teacher, Sakang Mipam, says about basic goodness is, If you really hold a view of basic goodness, it becomes okay to make mistakes, which is where that I I say in the book, oops might be my favorite word in the English language, and it's not even a real word. Oh, right, right. (laughs) So I I know that when when we're really practicing that, and you talked about interdependence like a, a, a lot, you mentioned that several times, what do you actually mean by interdependence? There's a lot of ways to talk about interdependence. It's a, it's a, it's a structure of relationship, and in, you know, it's it's becoming a huge and necessary line of thought in our political discussion. 
that what we decide to do right now about climate change is going to affect the entire planet for thousands of years to come. I was just reading a Bill McKibben article to that effect, right? So in the environmental movement, interdependence is thought about, we think we're just one being isolated, you know, but it's really an entire system and we have to be aware of how we affect the entire system. So it's really, it's really a kind of antidote to overly libertarian thought, to, to be honest. I'm here with teacher Ethan Nickturn, and he's the author of The Road Home, A Contemporary Exploration of the Buddhist Path. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Shambhala Buddhist teacher Ethan Nickturn, and he's the author of The Road Home, A Contemporary Exploration of the Buddhist Path. Ethan, we're talking about interdependence, and you were going to say something more about that. Yeah, I think there's more ways than just the interdependence of an environmental or social system to look at it. In fact, there's lots of different ways. It's any time we're talking about two or more things that exist in relationship to each other that are mutually affecting each other. Another way this is talked about is the relationship between our mind and our environment. So I think a lot of times um, when people have no relationship to their own mind, they just think that happiness is about chasing the right objects, which I talk about in the introduction of the book. Like if I get the new iPhone or the right house or the right vacation or the right relationship or the right relationship or the right identity i'm a writer i'm a published writer you know etc um or the right spiritual practice you know um i'm a buddhist or you know i go to burning man or whatever it is then we think we're going to be happy and i think sometimes people think well the spiritual path is realizing that that's not going to work because the objects are unstable so i should just forget about the objects of experience, and I should just focus on my own mind. It doesn't matter if it's cloudy or rainy outside. It doesn't matter if it's sunny and beautiful outside. It shouldn't affect my consciousness at all. And I think this is a little too extreme in the other direction because what interdependence is really saying is mind and its environment are in a relationship with each other. So I think to be a Buddhist, you're really studying, you're always studying relationship and interrelatedness and how our mind and the environment affect each other. I think that you mentioned in the book, I think a really good example of this, some of us have seen the movie Groundhog Day. Yes. And it's a wonderful movie about, you know, things going around, it repeating itself and repeating itself. However, you point out that life doesn't ever quite repeat itself because of that interdependence. Different people are going to come at you with the different responses each time. So it life is that kind of process. It, 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 it's never, you never, like a river flows, you, the, that part of the river is never in front of you at the same moment again. 
Exactly, exactly. I, I mean, I'm a big Bill Murray fan. I also talk about Ghostbusters. <laughs> uh, right, exactly. <laughs> anyway, I think most of us are Bill yeah. Murray fans. But uh, Groundhog Day has been called by Buddhist teachers a Buddhist movie because of the repetition of the repetition of samsara um, and so on, um, the, the cycle of him going through the same day over and over again. And sometimes our habits feel that way. But at the same time, um, every, all the other characters just do the same thing every day. And that's not really like real life. People, as you said, come at us from different directions and um, they have different reactions. So I really think that practicing is opening our awareness to compassion in a much more uh, it's kind of like a massive pinball game, our relationships. And you have to be open to the fact that things are not going to go in a controlled way. And how do I work with that, especially in relationships? I think that's a big lesson about the relationship between compassion and interdependence. That that just reminds me of the, the, the different levels of practice that you talk about. You talk about the personal practice. And then you talk about the interpersonal practice and then the collective practice. And it's not the way you describe them. It's not like, okay, I'm going to do my personal practice and then I'll start to do it in relation to others. And then I'll, you know, go out in the world and do some good work. It doesn't quite work that way, does it? Right, exactly. I mean, I think... So that's from the last section of the book, which really looks at what's called society's journey and a bigger sort of social context for these these Buddhist teachings uh, and communal context and global context. And so thinking about these three levels that our practice of being an awake human is happening on. We have our things we do to work with our own self-care or selfless care, however you want to think about that. Uh, we have our relationships, the interpersonal empathy and compassion and communication and many of the buddhist teachings are about that interpersonal level how to be a bodhisattva how to be a compassionate person with others and then we also have what is i think in traditional buddhism a more implicit but their level which in 20th 21st century western life as the world really globalized becomes more and more apparent which is the social communal collective level and i think what's beautiful about that simple framework of thinking of our practice on those three levels is I realize that pretty much everybody I know is a good practitioner of awakening on one of those levels. Like, so a yogi goes into a retreat or a cave for three years. They're really focusing on that first level, the personal awakening level. Lots of my friends are mothers of young children right now. And I, I almost feel like when you talk to them sometimes, if they're meditators, when you have a young child, your meditation practice suffers, and you also can't really focus on larger community issues. You're almost in a, in a retreat on the interpersonal level, raising a child. And then I think of people like activists or artists, a lot of times who are trying to make a big splash or really change the way some cultural or social perception or rules or laws manifest. And they're really good at the collective level. But the notion, I think, of the Shambhala, it's implicit in the Shambhala teachings, but really that notion of a, being a transformational practitioner, transformational activist is, can we think about balancing those three levels of practice? Meaning balancing them each day, like looking at each day and saying, did I do my personal practice? Did I show up to relationships in a way that was empathetic and compassionate? 
And am I staying in touch with the larger community and society that I live in? So it's that kind of holistic approach that's really inspiring to me about looking at those three levels of practice because I think we're all good at at least one of them. But the notion of balance uh, between the personal, the interpersonal, and collective um, really is what's inspiring to me. So I, I, I agree with that in, in so far as that it... it it's all kind of intertwined, and it's all relational. I mean, it, we're not—we don't have the opportunity. Very many of us have the opportunity to just retreat from the world. Right. It's just becoming more and more impossible to actually do that without a great deal of effort. So we're we're always interacting. I I remember the story you told about being at a some retreat and then going back to. New York City and entering Times Square oh, and yeah. what a, what a shock that that can be, and I think we're we're dealing with that kind of shock all the time. Can you describe that? Yeah, well that that's uh, that's from my first book, One City, which is really takes on this notion of interdependence, um, and just that feeling of feeling like you're practicing to get away from something like Times Square, which is just the most human and I, you could say post-human space, uh, I think, in the United States, although even the post-human parts were created by humans. So it's incredibly just walls of humans and their technology. And just that shock of feeling like going from a retreat in northern Vermont and feeling very sort of in a small contained community and then really going into the center of urban human society but those aren't really two separate experiences. I mean, they're happening on the same planet. And the notion is whatever training I was doing on a retreat was to be able to be in that space in a more awakened way. So it's shocking. But at the same time, I think as 21st century practitioners, we need to be able to move between very personal spaces and very collective spaces with some sense of maintaining our awareness. So is this because like we're anchored in some way to our our at home in ourselves that we are really okay that things are really okay in some way there's some sort of anchor there yeah i mean i think i, I think there's a reason that most traditional spiritual and psychological traditions and especially buddhism you have to start with yourself you have to start with really as i say in the book turning your own heart and mind into home because it's from there that you start to really feel safe enough and confident enough to work with other people. And you start to realize that your experience of other people and your experience of society is something that's manifesting in your own mind. So if you feel safer there and more open and compassionate there, then you can let other people in without your nervous system misperceiving them as threats all the time. You so can connect. I, I'm thinking too that it, like the the question that going a little bit back to to karma, uh, like coming into a situation like that instead of saying, oh, oh, whose fault is this? Like, oh my gosh, who all these advertisers and they're just coming at me in all this way? Is that you you ask yourself, how can I work with this now? I, I thought that was a very uh, good question to ask ourselves. Instead of like blaming or saying, oh, 
you know, it's I've done these bad things, so I have this whole bad list of things I've done, and that's now my karma I've got to make up for. Now, just keep dealing with, okay, how, well, how can I respond right now? Right, right. So there's this really interesting, in that last section, there's this really interesting need to balance two apparent contradictions, which is personal responsibility for our own home, which is our heart and mind, how we react to things, what our habits and karma are. And then also, on the other hand, interdependence, right? How we're affecting each other all the time, how advertising affects us, how um, our education, our upbringing affects us, how our economic and political systems affect us, how the environment affects us. And so I think, ironically, it's when we really realize how much our sense of who we are is socially constructed, is interdependent, but it's personally experienced, meaning no one can look at your own mind for you. That sense of acknowledging the social construct, I think it removes shame and blame, which is a lot of times why people don't want to look at their karmas. We think we're going to find out that we are bad. We did some original sin. We did something that was our fault. And this is saying when you look, you see that it's it's interwoven, you know, um, I love my teacher, Sakyang Mipam, who I quote in the book, says, when you meditate, you actually realize that many of the thoughts you think are your own are really coming from social ceremonies that have been grafted onto your mind. And I love that. The notion of like a self-aggressive thought is coming from a social situation, yet at the same time, only we can work with that self-aggressive thought because we're the one who's thinking it. It's arising in our mind. And so what do we do with that aggressive thought toward ourselves? Well, I think you have to, first we recognize it, and then we work to try to cultivate a sense of compassion towards ourselves. You could actually say, may I, may I feel less aggressive towards myself? May I feel basically good about who I am? May I feel compassionate? You could even visualize yourself as a more capable being, which is some of the tantric practices are about transforming sort of our inner script through visualization practice. Um, but I think the recognition is important because the recognition removes the kind of shame and blame. And then you start saying, oh, okay, this isn't my mess, but only I can work with it. And I think that's a really healthy balance of acknowledging interdependence and acknowledging personal responsibility. I also think there's a real political dimension to that because there's so many conservative thinkers right now who are preaching personal responsibility, which... Of course, if you're a Buddhist and if you've ever looked at your own mind, you have to agree with. But to remove that from the context of interdependence is just you're only seeing a tiny bit of the of the puzzle. I'm here with Ethan Nickturn, and he's a Shambhala Buddhist teacher and the author of The Road Home, A Contemporary Exploration of the Buddhist Path. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Shambhala Buddhist teacher Ethan Nickturn, and he's the author of The Road Home, A Contemporary Exploration of the Buddhist Path. And Ethan, I would like to talk about the intelligence of emotions. Usually we think that we must avoid them if we're a good practitioner, not get emotional. But you have another take on that. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I think this avoiding of emotions is when Chogyam Trungpa was talking about spiritual materialism, what he was really talking about was pursuing certain perceived paths that lead us only to feel certain heightened or positive, so-called positive emotional states like bliss, like happiness, like peace. And so I like to think of that as a form of emotional materialism or privileging certain emotions. And the point is that human beings have to have all of the emotions, like fear, like sadness, like anger, like desire. And the tantric or Vajrayana Buddhist tradition, which you talk about in the third section of the book, you know, really looks at this notion of what one of the most helpful things in all of Buddhist thought to me is this notion of co-emergence, which is that any mind state, any emotional state, if we fixate on it, if it gets into a habitual pattern, it can lead to destructive habits. But if our mind can be at home with itself and hold the emotion in awareness, which is not the easiest thing to do, as we know, each emotion has a kind of wisdom. You know, So, for example, anger, there's nothing wrong with anger. Anger is actually, you get angry because you see that something is wrong in the world. You know, I remember um, during the, the Bush uh, era, there was signs on the New York City um, subway that said, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. And that, to me, really says something about the wisdom of anger, that it can call to mind some injustice or some avoidable suffering and say, we really need to look at this, you know, and so it fires you up to, to But once it, it fires you up and you act on that in a, in a good way, in some way, skillful way, weekly, then you, like a, like a baby is angry about something, and then they get over it really fast, and, right. and it's like they're not— they, they let it go. Pretty, they're, la- they're laughing the next moment. And that's, that's, right. that's what you're talking about as far as not grabbing hold of it then. That's right. I think this whole view of turning our own heart and mind into home is a quality of having a proper relationship where we always feel at home and therefore safe. And then whatever's arising in our experience is like a temporary guest in the home. And you don't just reject a guest that comes into your home there's always they always have a story they always have their own um, experience they always have their own wisdom and but as, if you try to manipulate them then problems arise so i think there is this idea that we could actually experience emotions in the moment almost like uh just because of my generation like a spidey sense and it could tell us something about the situation, and then we could respond, and then we could let it go. Because usually then there's a next, there's a next moment coming up. Um, so I think we need to not pursue a spiritual path or a meditative path that's about rejecting certain emotions, which I think it's so popular to do that because we don't know how to deal with our anger. We don't know how to deal with our desire. So we just assume spiritually that they are bad or problematic when really always you're saying is we don't know how to be present with them. We don't know how to welcome them as guests and then let them go when it's time to. Let's use some example. Um, Let's say pride. Yeah. I mean, we're we're taught not to have pride. We must be humble. But where would pride, where would it ever be 
something that's intelligent for us. Yeah, I mean, this is this is an interesting thing because working with a lot of students have a hard time even writing a resume as a Buddhist because you're like, oh, I can't say I'm good at anything. Whereas a resume, you have to say you're great at things that you're just decent at, right? Um, how do we promote ourselves? You know, without some relationship to confidence, uh, I wouldn't be able to be on your radio show right now because you would have invited me and I would have been like, oh, no, I'm not smart enough to talk about Buddhism, you know, or write this book. So there has to be some sort of owning our own ability not that we're better than anyone else, but saying like, yes, I know something about that. And there's a feeling of, of inherent richness. That's the way the Shambhala teachings talk about the wisdom of pride is you're experiencing your own richness. You're experiencing what you have to offer. And then you're actually offering it rather than hoarding it for yourself. So I think that's part of the wisdom of pride is generosity. I remember at some point the Dalai Lama talking about having confidence and I remember being so shocked by that because I really, I was one who was saying, oh, I need to be humble. I don't need to be prideful. And he was just being very adamant mm -hmm. about it's very important that we have confidence in ourselves. Yeah. I mean, this whole tradition is based on the idea that human beings are inherently awake, are inherently Buddha, that we have intelligence, that we have compassion, that these practices are just bringing out unveiling to us and stabilizing what's inherently there. And I think the only problem with confidence comes up when you start comparing yourself to other people. You know, to say I love to paint or I love to write or I, you know, like to talk about Buddhism, it only becomes a problem when I start saying, well, who else is doing this? Am I better than them? Does Justine like me more than them or less than them? It's like just saying I can show up and, and offer what I can. And that that kind of pride is something I think we all need in whatever creative, whatever um, pursuit. You know, if you ask somebody out on a date with no confidence, I mean, it can be cute. They can maybe <laughs> let you off the hook, but there should be some sense of like, yeah, I'm somebody you yeah. might want to hang out with. Right, right. So uh, let's talk about a big one, fear, yeah. the emotion of fear. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I've become fascinated the last five or so years by the interplay between Buddhist thought and modern evolutionary biology and neuroscience. And I think fear is a huge one. It's one that the Shambhala teachings talk so much about as a kind of most primal emotion. And I think we would love to live without it, but it's pretty clear that the way the human nervous system evolved, it's evolved to make us feel, make us aware of potential threats very often, which means we're going to experience fear. And it can either be a sense of like, being under attack, or it can remind us that we're alive. That's the beautiful thing about fear is it's actually a reminder that you are alive and that life is fragile and it's, you can actually um, make friends with fear. And it's that making friends with fear that in the Shambhala tradition we call fearlessness, which is linguistically odd because I think some people think fearlessness would be the absence of fear. But it's really what happens when you meet fear and saying like this is this is going to be a frequent visitor in the home of my heart mind, just the way life is set up. It's unstable. It's electric. Um, we don't know when we're going to die. We don't know what other people think about us. We don't know if our current action is going to succeed or not. And you just show up anyway. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, especially doing what I do, I've had to learn to work with fear quite a lot of just the little moments of anxiety. And I think a lot of times the, our problem with fear is thinking we're supposed to grin and bear it or not feel it. And I think when you start to actually welcome it, 
you can uh, shift your relationship to it. it. It becomes less problematic. That reminds me of an incident that you wrote about in the book, yeah. and it actually made me cry. I just, I, it, it took me to the same place that you described, mm-hmm. and you were describing flying, I think, from the West Coast to the East Coast. It's the middle of the night. It's 3 o'clock in the morning or yeah. something. You're on some airplane, and you, you, you got into your sadness, yeah. and you just you sat there with it. Yeah, and I, I bring that up because you were just talking about feeling your aliveness. Yeah, and there's something about sitting in such an emotion like sadness that can be so exquisitely alive. Yeah, and vibrant. Yeah, I the I mean the Shambhala teachings talk so much about sadness as a genuine, as nothing, uh, something that nothing is wrong in. It's different maybe than a depressed, like, I'm no good state that we all get into. But sadness is this sense of, like, just touching the tenderness of, in that case, it was a breakup I didn't initiate. That was about five years ago. And just touching the tenderness of feeling one's own heart, feeling one's own longing, one's love, one's loss. And it's just, like, it's the most human emotion. You know, we also feel it when we feel compassion. There's just, like, so much suffering in the world. And the moment you let that touch you. And I think, you know, one of the things that's to me is off about our culture is a child is learn, learns from a very early age that if you see somebody crying or see somebody sad, you walk up to them and say, what's wrong? And from, a, from a, this standpoint of the wisdom of emotions, you would say, um, nothing's wrong. I'm a human being, being a human being. And a lot of people have actually talked to me about that section of the book because there was also this sort of very 21st century moment of realizing that I was on a red-eye flight and when I landed at 6 a.m., there would be nobody there for me to text, you know, say I'm okay and I've arrived and people have said that's such a, that's such a moment that triggers this sense of I have to connect with myself. I have to befriend myself in that moment. And that's what that, that story of the flight was on. And I, I really wanted to include that because... You know, obviously, I'm, I grew up in New York City. I'm 36 years old. I'm not like your typical Buddhist teacher, so I don't think people are in danger of idealizing me. But I really feel like um, that there's this tendency to really idealize any kind of spiritual teacher. And I always find that when I just open up to how I handle these things as a normal human being living a normal life, that that really creates a lot of connection. So um, that sense of a real willingness to be with whatever the emotion is and to not act destructively out of the emotion to just actually experience your experience and let it be a guest in your home. Um, um, yeah, that was, I, I was wondering whether or not I should write that part. And then I'm I, glad you did. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Ethan, I want to thank you so much for being part of New Dimensions today. Thanks so much for having me. And, and, and thanks so much for how carefully you read the book. It really means a lot that oh. you did that. My my immense pleasure. I've been speaking with Shambhala Buddhist teacher Ethan Nickturn, and he's the author of The Road Home, A Contemporary Exploration of the Buddhist Path. And if you'd like to know more about his work, you can go to his website, ethannickturn.com, and he spells his last name N-I-C-H-T-E-R-N, Nickturn. EthanNickturn.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions.
This is program number 3550. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.